Hi, everybody. It's uh, Tim here in the sound booth. Uh, I just want to let everyone know that um, uh, Joe and uh, Neil are having some trouble uh, with their microphones, it seems. Um, they can hear us, but uh, we can't hear anything that's coming from them. So while they sort that out, and they're, they're, I'm sure they're busy sorting it out right now, I'm going to play a, a short clip from the movie The Matrix. Ooh. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work. When you go to church. When you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a... Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines on Scott Radio Network. Apologies to all our listeners for the little glitch in the matrix. Well, we're back, we're here, and we're live. This week, we're speaking with none other than Daniel Estulin. Daniel is an award-winning investigative journalist, best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. He's also authored 11 other books, five of them international bestsellers, and has now sold something like 6 million copies worldwide. In the next couple of months, he's also releasing a documentary on the Bilderberg Group. His latest book, Transevolution, The Age of Human Deconstruction, describes, quote, the change of paradigm for humanity that shall define its future and threaten its very existence. Welcome, Daniel. Are you there with us? There's a... There, Daniel. Daniel? Uh, sorry, I think... There's a really loud noise coming through. Daniel, are you there? I'm here. Yeah, okay. Sorry, we were getting Hello? a long, loud tone... Yeah, we were getting a loud tone there from uh, when we put you live, so uh, I don't know what that was, but it's gone now. Okay, I'm here, yeah. You can hear us okay? I can okay, hear you great. very well, Thanks thank you. All right, great. Well, listen, welcome to the show. Uh, 
it's myself, uh, I'm Joe, and uh, it's uh, Neil, because we haven't had a chance, we were meant to have a chance to talk to you before the show, we didn't get a chance because of our technical issues, but uh, so we'll just do a quick introduction now. Uh, so yeah, well, well, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Daniel. Thanks very much for coming on. Um, I've introduced you to our guests, excuse me, to our listeners. I think most of them will be familiar with you and your work. You're, you're most well-known to us. Um, I think the listeners, too, is the guy who wrote the book on the Bilderberg Group. So that seems like the place to start. Maybe you can tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in uncovering the hidden elites in general. Well, uh, about 20 years ago, I uh, I had lunch with a friend of mine who was in the Secret Service. And uh, in, over lunch, he was telling me about this the secret society or private organization. I, I didn't quite, you know, understood what he was talking about at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, he basically told me that uh, three years into the future, that would be 1995, uh, Canada will be broken up into English and French-speaking Canada, and all these funny things would go on behind the scenes. And, and I, I kind of asked him, you know, why would they do that? And who would be, you know, doing it? And he said to me, some very powerful people, because what they need to do is they needed to balance the budget. You know, it all sounded nonsense to me, and uh, um, you know, I quickly forgot about that lunch and that conversation until <clears throat> 1995 rolled around, and then, uh, well, you know, suddenly all these things which uh, this man, this funny man, was telling me, or you know, so matter of factly, three years before, uh, were, were right there in front of me on the television screen, and all these characters and individuals and politicians I've never heard of from these obscure, you know, pipsqueak, you know, extremist parties, suddenly were, they're making very loud and very nasty and, and, and very, you know, troublesome uh, statements and announcements on how they wanted to split from Canada and and the other side was saying how, you know, they'd go to Quebec and, you know, and then and, and just wipe them all out and, you know, how the civil war was upon us. And, uh, you know, then I kind of understood that uh, what this man knew for years in the past, it actually came from some very, very good sources. And uh, I, you know, asked myself if the presidents and the prime ministers really don't have all that much power, and it was obvious that they didn't, then who the heck ran the world from behind the scenes? And that's a little bit how I got into the, uh, um, I got into the Bilderberg uh, conspiracy or, or Bilderberg organization, or call it what you wish, but uh, it's been one hell of a ride. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I've been at it for about 15, 17 years. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not I'm not the first person to uh, to talk about Bilderberg. Uh, Jim Tucker talked about it in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and before him, Spotlight magazine and uh, uh, also in, in the states, you know, they discussed it as well. You know, in the 60s. But I think you know what what I what I, what I was able to do with the true story of the Bilderberg Group is make it you know popular and cool to talk about it. Whether it was before, it was very much the domain of conspiracy theories. Um, I brought it into the mainstream, you know, I showed the documents and the, you know, we all, we all hear people talk about they control the world, they do this, you know, behind the scenes. But we didn't really know who these they were until, you know, I brought it out into the open through the Bilderberg book and I showed the photographs and documents and, you know, in their secret discussions or secretive discussions. And then I kind of traced it and, and you know, demonstrated to people how these discussions had very much your effect on the lives of everyone on the planet. And, and I guess that's what made it popular. And, and uh, now the Bilderberg, the true story, the Bilderberg group has been published in 
68 countries now. We just published it in India. has been translated to 42 languages and, you know, in five continents. And now we have the documentary coming out uh, at the end of May, beginning of June, worldwide documentary, 90 Minutes, on the uh, Bilderberg book, uh, or Bilderberg group, based on my book. <clears throat> so, um, I mean, the Bilderbergers have a... The Bilderberg meetings are, it's not really a conspiracy for, in the sense of, um, it's in the public, you know, I mean, uh, the, mainstream, the mainstream media in the West will, you know, report on the Bilderbergers and say that they're, ha- you know, mention that they're having meetings and there'll be some names thrown out there and stuff, but they present it as more or less a kind of high-level networking organization, where they simply, these are powerful, rich people who get together and do business deals and, uh, you know, maybe they... Uh, talk to politicians or kind of lobby groups like you have in, in many countries, particularly in the U.S., you have lobby groups who will petition government for different things. And they're kind of presented in terms of... Uh, as benign. As a fairly benign, normal kind of thing. But So what is it about them that you contend that is more, a bit more insidious or a bit more underhand? Well, you know, the uh, Bilderberg was a very important element of the oligarchical structures of the cold. <clears throat> Sorry, I think I got a bit of a cold. The, uh, it was a very important element of the uh, oligarchical structures of the Cold War period, and uh, and that is a pretty significant factor because what it meant was that uh, Bilderberg was a vehicle through which private financier oligarchical interests were able to impose their policies on, on what is nominally sovereign governments. And uh, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of nonsensical kind of stuff out there about Bilderbergers and you know all all seeing eye or an evil eye. Mm. You know, Jewish Masonic conspiracy and, and you know just all kinds of just crazy stuff. You know even you know some some people talking about them as some kind of you know extraterrestrials who came down to Earth and you know we're not going to go into that because it's just so so silly. But what, you know what is absolutely true is is that uh, uh, the biggest scandal part of of this whole Bilderberg organization was that uh, it was heavily populated by people who came out of the old World War II Nazi apparatus. And who basically cleaned up and dusted off, and, and and basically deployed to become a hard core of the Cold War anti-Soviet structures in the West. People such as uh, uh, Prince Bernard, for example, of the Netherlands, uh, who was one of the founders of the um, of the Bilderberg organization. Uh, he was, you know, Walter Hausstein, the first president of the European Commission, who was a Nazi lawyer. And uh, a, a lot of the, uh, the structure itself of European Union was actually based on the Nazi structures which were put together by Hausstein, you know, 20 years earlier in the 1930s before the Second World War. But, you know, what's, what's, it's undeniable, no matter how you look at all these organizations, what you talking about, Bilderberg, the Trilateral Commission, which is, you know, a, a junior varsity a member of this, of, of, of this, uh, uh, of these organizations, you know, who do things behind the scenes. Uh, or the Council of Foreign Relations, which is an American sister organization of the Bilderbergers. Oh, you could talk about the Penai Circle, the Bohemian Grove, and you know, just, just so many of them out there. They're all conveyor belts. None of them are, you know, the seats, the real seats of power. I think it's obvious the fact that you and I are talking about Bilderberg should basically, you know, exclude them from being very, very important because truly important people and organizations absolutely are known to the general humanity and, you know, nobody writes bestsellers about them. And uh, I'm not pulling my own book. What I'm saying is that when it came out, it kind of it was just <laughs> the right time. To, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just the right time to. Uh, I'm honest, you know, to kind of you know talk about this because you know we always talk about they do this and they control that and you know and but we don't we never really know who these they are. 
And when Bilderberg came out, yeah. suddenly, you know, the photographs and the, and people suddenly said, aha, I knew it. There they are. And suddenly these, they became Bilderberg and it's not. But, you know, if you kind of look at it from a logical point of view of a thinking individual, um, and you look at the people who attend these meetings, presidents, prime ministers, ministers of finance, you, you know, in Europe and the United States and Canada, um, most of these people belong to one time or another to, to Bilderberg. Of course, in the United States, sitting presidents don't attend these meetings, but they're well represented by others who attend on their behalf. And there's absolutely no doubt mm-hmm. that uh, this, this is how it works. You know, but what, what is interesting is the fact that you have these annual meetings where 120, 130 uh, maximum 140 people meet once a year for during four days and they do discuss world politics, but then, you know, to take it from there and extrapolate that in a four day period, they, you know, they iron out all the, you know, body politics for the entire year. I mean, you have these four D's that are sitting in a dark room in the, you know, in a dungeon holding hands, staring at a crystal ball, planning the world's domination. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty <laughs> silly, but you know, I mean, I mean, you're laughing. I laugh, but you know, it, what, what is true and, and, um, uh, this is where things get uh, very interesting is that, you know, the intention behind each and all of the Bilderberg meetings is what they call creation of aristocracy of purpose between Europe and the United States. Basically, how to come to agreements on questions of, of policy, economy, strategy, and, you know, jointly ruling the world. And uh, uh, what's interesting about this entire thing is, is, again, people talk about New World Order and, you know, Bush father says, New World Order, and you know people go crazy, and you know they have these multiple orgasms as if aha, here it is. You know he's the guy who said it out loud. You know, but it's not a, a one world order, a new world government. The concept is different. The concept of one world <coughs> company, limited corporations that have a lot more power than any government on the planet. You know we've seen this, and we're seeing it on on daily basis how basically corporations around the world on on behalf of of, of governments. And Bilderberg talked about this. Uh, back in 1968, when uh, George Baldy, Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, with uh, uh, with Johnson and JFK, you know, he he made a presentation on the internationalization of of, of business, and they you know brought this into the open, the whole idea of uh, um, of one world, uh, a company limited, and then what exactly they stood to gain by having it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's it's sensible and rational. Like it makes sense um, what you're proposing and what the Bilderbergers and these other groups do uh, when you consider the globalized nature of business today. I mean, if there, there's some major global corporations who, who span the globe essentially and are making money in, in almost every country in the world. So, you know, it would make sense from their point of view that they get together with other corporations in the same game and, uh, you know, political representatives from those countries and they all work something out supposedly as, a, as far as they're concerned, you know, just to do better business and, to, you know, make more profits for the shareholders, blah, blah, blah. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, I mean, you talk about it being a global kind of uh, the 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 scope of the Bilderbergers being global. Has it always been truly global, and is it even global today? I mean, in terms of the, the first meeting, I think was in 1954. So, I mean, during the Cold War, was there were there Soviet representatives of business and government attending these meetings? And today, are there Russian and Chinese, for example, representatives there? Oh no, actually, no. You could never have these. At the Bilderberg meeting, and Bilderberg is your, your your old NATO alliance, Western Europe, Canada, and the United States. Right. And you have okay. you know the Trilateral Commission, which is you know a Americas, Asia, and Europe. That's that's trilateral. You have the Council for Religion, which is an American organization. You know, with all members only coming from the United States. 
Uh, and then you have others, you know, lesser known, better known. But Bilderberg has always been a NATO, former NATO alliance. And now you have, you know, former Warsaw Pact nations. You have individual members from these nations. And even a few Russians over the years have been invited. But these Russians were not invited as members of the government. These Russians were invited mm. because they're traitors to the nation state of Russia or, or China or wherever. And basically they go there. Didn't represent the government, you know. A few years back in 2004, uh, Yavlinsky, Grigory Yavlinsky, who was the president of this group called Yabloka, was for a time, you know, seen as an alternative to Putin. And in 2004, he's basically the continuation of the corruption-ridden uh, scandal, uh, you know, period of, uh, of Yeltsin back in the 1990s, where a country was, you know, literally wiped out and almost, you know, was destroyed. Until you know, put put out of its misery, but you know, luckily that didn't happen. So, but you know, what's what's interesting about all these kinds of meetings when you look at them? If you take a year, let's say, as a twelve month period, with what I just said, I know year is twelve month period. But you know, the year starts with well, the first big meeting of the year is Davos. That's end of January, beginning of February. We just had it this year, and uh, uh, you know, after that you have the Trilateral Commission Regional Meeting of America it takes place in February. Then you have in March CFR meets. They have their you know regional you know uh, biannual meeting, and then uh, in uh, in April you have G7, and in May early June you have Bilderbergers meet. Uh, September you have the International Monetary Fund World Bank annual meeting. Then again in October you have the Trilateral Commission Asia. In between somewhere there the Trilateral Commission Americas meet, and then in November you have the Trilateral Commission annual meeting, and then you know, so basically you have all these different meetings and you throw in foundations, think tanks, you know, Hudson's and, and, and Ford Foundations and, and Rockefellers and, and Carnegie's and, and Hoover's and, and just, you know, it, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's, it's it basically you have it's a kind of invisible international consensus emerges and it's carried over from one meeting to the next. But no one is really leading it. That's what's interesting about this. Yeah, there's not this, this old geezer, you know, who looks really ugly at these Hollywood films and there's basically this bad guy <laughs> with a big scar on his face. You know, and it's yeah. not cliche. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not serious. And, you know, so again, no one is really eating with me, but the consensus, you know, become the background, for example, for the G7 economic communique, and that becomes what informs the International Monetary Fund uh, when it imposes an adjustment program in Argentina or, you know, structural adjustment program in Nigeria. And then it becomes what the United States mm. president proposes to Congress and somewhere in between, you know, it becomes, you know, the national policy of, of governments in Europe. Before you know it, the European Commission is talking about it. And before you know it, you know, the president of, of the European Commission is, is making it into European law. And before you know it, it's, you know, it's, it's all over the place in every newspaper in the world. And it all, you just kind of say, what well, you know, how did this come about? Well, it just came about because somebody decided it was important, but it mm. was important of these forums. You know, behind the scenes where, and, and that's how all this stuff really works. And, you know, then mm -hmm. what happens is this consensus reached is simultaneously promoted by these uh, all powerful political and commercial interests through the mainstream press, the Fifth Estate, which is very much part of Bilderberg, while simultaneously <clears throat> becoming common policy, you know, to governing international forces of seemingly different persuasions. And the controlled debates when dealing with any of these issues. Literally, I intended to build unity by resolving differences, and that's how this stuff works. And, and again, it's it's logical on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you actually kind of go into what these people have done over the years, and you know, I can give you some very blatant examples, you know, which will make you sit up and wonder. Uh, it certainly, you know, makes you puts you on notice as to their final intentions of of, uh, of this globalized control. But again, it's it's not 
one world order where you have this, you know, one dictator. It's it's, it's rather a concept of one world company limited <coughs> corporations controlling governments as we see today, which is why, you know, in Europe, European Central Bank, or uh, you know, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, Federal Reserve, you know, have a lot more power than governments. And then, then uh, you know, in Spain, the president of Spain doesn't preside over anything at all. Now, I don't think, you know, even in his household, his wife probably, you know, presides over mm-hmm. here. But nationally, certainly mm-hmm. doesn't do anything because you have the famous, you know, economic troika that comes into Spain and tells him what he has to do, where he has to cut, where he has to nip and tuck. And, and you know, and then you kind of wonder, well, yeah, I didn't elect this guy. I didn't elect any guy because I, mm-hmm. I don't vote. But, you know, if I did, you know, I certainly wouldn't vote for this guy. But, I, you know, but then again, right. you, you know, why vote? Because in the end, what you vote for is irrelevant because somebody unelected comes in from somewhere else and tells the guy you elected or allegedly elected, you know, what he has to do to make you suffer. <laughs> right. You know, so <laughs> it, it makes it exposes the sham of democracy, basically, in the Western world in particular. Well, you know, I think, you know, the whole thing of democracy, it's silly, you know, think of democracy, you think of pollution wars, and I think the idea is liberty, which is, you know, what you want. Democracy is the rule of the mob. So when you get, you know, 10, 10 white guys beating up on a black lady, you know, in the southern United States, that's democracy, you get 40 Nazis, yeah. you, know, kick, you know, kicking, you know, with their steel-toed boots, an old Jewish woman, and you know, in, in, in the Polish ghetto, well, that's apparently democracy, too, although it's not the kind of democracy right. I'd vote for. But the the build the, the way you describe you the Bilderbergers and these, and these the way you describe the Bilderbergers and these other groups, uh, they're effectively like you just said they're effectively international think tanks that then uh, what think tanks do is they shape and form uh, government policy around the world and like you said these people aren't elected uh, so and they're they're shaping government policy that is directly affecting the people but the people in most of these countries still hold to this hopelessly naive idea that they have some power in the sense of they get to elect their their prime minister and their politicians, and they're the people who decide. But you're saying they're not the people who decide. They're told what to do. Policy is formed for them by external people who are never elected and people know nothing about, really, don't know about their character. They don't campaign. They don't present themselves to the people as a as a good candidate or a bad candidate. So there is no democracy in that sense in, in, the, in the way that people conceive of it, as in direct representation by elected leaders chosen by the people. Well, you know, people may not recognize it, but, you know, the reality is that the world has been living under this oligarchical imperial structure, which you just described, for the past 4,000 years. And, you know, I mean, you first had, right. at some point, the Persian Empire. You know, when, when Greece had won over that Persian Empire, you know, they could have turned the Attic Sea Alliance into an alliance of equal partners, but they decided to become an empire instead. And this was described by Thucydides in the Peloponnesian War. And, and you know, this was followed by the Roman Empire, then the Byzantine Empire, then the Crusades, uh, which were wars on behalf of the Venetian banking system, which later on became, you know, Bilderberg, and then the Anglo-Dutch Empire, which exists since 1763 in various forms until today, again, in, you know, in the form of globalization and the Bilderberg Group, and in between you have the Synarchists and the Martinists and all that other stuff, but basically it's, the system hasn't changed. It's the same oligarchical imperial system which has been running the world for, for for many, many years. And if you go even a little bit further back in time, instead of 4,000 years, you go like 6,000 years. Or, you know, you go to the, uh, you know, ancient Egypt and you, you ask yourself who, who ruled Egypt. It wasn't the pharaohs, that's for sure. You know, there were little boys and girls mm-hmm. uh, who basically followed orders and mm-hmm. who ruled the Egypt. They were the high priests who had the knowledge and, you know, they kind of gave it to us drip one at a time. 
at least those high priests of you know lesser years who lived in, in Egypt way back then today live in Switzerland. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. that really hasn't changed all that much. And if you know anything about Switzerland, it's the nastiest, dirtiest, filthiest, you know, smelliest country in the face of the earth for as much you know pristine mountain tops they may have. And I know you know yeah. one or two things about that country, and you know, needless to say, it's it's. You know, it's it's a garbage scum of the earth nation. You know, there's ever one, was one, and then because again, it's it's the most corrupt nation, the most filthiest nation, monetarily and financially, and you know, on the face of the earth, you know, worse than anything else out there. And uh, <clears throat> and of course, that all goes back to you know ancient Egypt. But so how, no matter how you look at history, and unfortunately, people don't know much about history. But if they did, they certainly realize that you know not much has changed since then. Yeah, absolutely. We can't argue with that at all. Um, can you give us a couple of examples that you mentioned previously about that'll make us sit up and take notice about what these people have done? Well, you know, I, I'm just thinking. I was actually thinking of what examples to give you, and, and probably you know the best example I can give you is is 90, well, there's so many of them, but you know, a good example is is uh, 1973 uh, uh, oil uh, oil uh, embargo. If you kind of, you know, yeah. look at this stuff uh, over the last 60 years, which is, you know, Bilderberg is 60 years old this year, or in 1954, so 60 now, this year is going to be the 61st year. You know, it's since its inception, basically the Bilderberg Group imposed one of the most profound shifts in economic and nation-state policies, the paradigm shift to post-industrial society, you know, or economy, your oil shocks, credit cutoffs, interest rate shocks, Forcing the world economy to go to zero and eventually negative growth, and the results of um, of, of this far-reaching policy today, you know, are self-evident. And you know, I can't think of a better example than Detroit, which once was the engine and you know of, of America's economic and, and, and uh, industrial engineering growth. And today, it plays and it kind of looks like this decrepit thing you see in Hollywood films. I, you know, I am Legend by you know Will Smith or some zombie film with Brad mm-hmm. Pitt. You know, post-apocalyptic. And, and you know, this is exactly what it looks like. And the elitists want the entire world to look like that because uh, you know, progress and development is directly proportional to population density. So people are wondering why would Rockefellers of this world, the billionaires and the million millionaires who have all the monies in the world and who are basically capitalists, which capitalism allegedly meaning making money. What is it? You know, why are they trying to destroy the world's economy? And the, the reason they're doing this. Is because again, progress and development is proportional to population density. If you have progress, you have technology, you have development, you have more people. More people means more mouths to feed. And we're living on a small planet with limited natural resources. And you know, for the Rockefellers of this world to eat, most of us have to die. And that's how they look at it. But going back to my example, in May 1973, Bilderberg Group met at an exclusive resort in uh, Salzburg in Sweden. And uh, the key point on, on the Bilderberg meeting agenda that year was the oil shock of 1973, which was the uh, which had yet uh, to happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The 400% okay. targeted increase in the price of OPEC oil in the near future actually did go up 400% six months later. Now, if you kind of go back to the fact that the critical break point which the British Empire, you know, had been working on in Texas since the 1960s was. 60s was the breakup of Bretton Woods system, without which you could have never had the oil hoax of the second part of the 70s. And so beginning in mid-1970s, 73, 74, and extending all the way through the Carter administration to the 79, 80 period, 
the European oligarchy basically was intent on breaking up the system that FDR had set in place for post-World War II order that was uh, premised on the decolonization of the planet. That's what, you know, Roosevelt wanted to do, break up the British Empire. He knew that they were evil. He wanted to get rid of them. And so Churchill initially, and then, you know, British in general, they took serious steps in the mid to late 1960s under Harold Wilson's administration in England uh, to weaken and effectively destroy the bread and wood system. And in 1971, Nixon basically pulled the plug on the whole thing altogether. And uh, uh, so basically the stage was set to go from the system of fixed exchange rates that gave an advantage to real production, development, investment. And after 71, everything went in favor of the uh, of the speculators. So the oil shock of 73, uh, the 400% targeted increase in oil prices, if you kind of look back and compare those numbers today, I'm sure it actually go, you know, went beyond 400%. But all that was aimed at launching a systematic process of eluding of the actual productive wealth of all the major nations of the planet. And, you know, the, the Bilderbergers and, and company, they knew that this increase of the, 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 the embargo was, was, was coming because, you know, they, they basically did everything in their power to force the Arabs' hands, you know, to force the embargo on them. Now, the oil hoax, <clears throat> and it was a hoax, ultimately created this enormous volume of wealth transfer, nominally to the OPEC countries, the so-called petrodollars, but all of that money went to London and Wall Street to be managed. So the financial oligarchy in the major centers used the oil hawks you know, to establish an absolute domination over world credit and to make sure it no longer went to any development. Now, if you kind of you know, analyze the structure of, of, of the hawks on that 1973 period, you have to understand that prior to Egypt-Israeli war in 1973, oil was priced in long-term deals between nations for example, between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia, where the price of oil through the oil company was set at, you know, something like $10 a barrel for years. And that would not fluctuate. Mm -hmm. It was a fixed price. So what happened then, the war was used as a pretext for there to be an oil embargo against the United States and also other Western nations that supported Israel. And so to get, you know, your oil or their oil, the oligarchy set up a spot market in Rotterdam where the United States and other nations that were on the boycott list would go and buy their oil and they would pay market prices for this. And this was the, uh, this was the spot market. And so that's why today you have to understand, you know, if you're paying like, I don't know, if you're living in France, a dollar fifty or you were fifty for, for a liter of oil, you're overpaying by about 65%. And if you're living in America, the same thing. You know, there's something to be said, the fact that in, in Russia, oil costs about uh, 60 cents a, a liter, and in Saudi Arabia, it's like six cents a liter. And in uh, in Venezuela, I think it's like six cents a liter as well. You know, it's the same oil, no matter where you look at it, it's just the price is different. So <clears throat> basically, the uh, uh, the you know, the, the, the discussion during the 73 Bilderberg meeting was not about how we, as some of the world's most powerful representatives of the world's industrial nations and cartels, convinced the Arabs not to increase oil price so dramatically because it's going to hurt our economies. You know, they knew it was going to hurt the economies, but they wanted the oil embargo. They wanted the price increases because, again, they wanted to deindustrialize America. If you talk about the Rockefellers and the Kissingers and the Brzezinski's, they're not American citizens or sources. They're American citizens because they have a passport. They're internationalists, they're globalists, they're traitors to the nation states that they apparently allegedly represent. And, and so these people couldn't care less about their country. They talk about, you know, you know 
this pan world, this one world company limited, which has very little to do with, with, with nations. So these people at this meeting, knowing that you're going to have this 40% price hike, they talked about what, what do we do with all the petrodollars that will come inevitably to London and New York banks from the Arab OPEC you know, oil revenues. So by basically manipulating the price of oil, you can manipulate the development of the third world, which was beginning to look as if it could grow into significant competition. And this is what happened in Africa. Yet so many African nations in the 1970s, after they recovered their independence and they were getting back on their feet, they were pulling themselves by you know, the proverbial bootstraps. And you know, they were beginning mm. to make deals with Russia and China and you know, all these other nations. And they looked like they were going to be independent countries. And so by pushing the oil price through the stratosphere, 400% increase from you know, 350 a barrel to uh, 1160 a barrel, it destroyed these countries, just brought them back you know, into nothingness again. And so this oil price jumping by 400% by you know, uh, January 1974, and again, I show it in my book, The True Story of the Deliver Group, there's a document which uh, uh, was uh, kindly given to me by, uh, you know, by, by William Engdahl, uh, an economist, American economist, and in the document, mm-hmm. which he obtained from his Bilderberg resources, they're talking about it, I think on some page 65, how they say, you know, the price of oil right now is 350 a barrel. We want it to go somewhere between 10 and 1250 a barrel. So, you know, six months later, it went to 1165. I'd say that's like, you know, right in the middle. So people that are saying that all this Bilderberg stuff is, is a conspiracy theory, you just, you kind of look at them and say, you really don't know anything about how the world works. So anyway, I kind of got, got off topic mm-hmm. for a bit. So, you know, this price shock, immediately halted growth in Europe. It smashed the industrialization of the developing countries in the third world and uh, basically tilted the power balance back in the direction of London, Wall Street, and the dollar system. And the orchestrated oil hawks of 73, 74, with its introduction of financial speculation in the oil market via the spot market, it created this huge pool of petrodollars with which the city of London could wage war against nations. And then they used it to fund operations to transform the United States from within, including the takeover of the U.S. banking system and the cartelization under the euphemism of mergers and acquisitions. That's the term that they used back then <clears throat> of corporate America. And, and, you know, basically Wall Street was transferred into this giant casino uh, where, you know, betting on financial instruments replaced investing and the connection to reality was, was just, you know, severed. And so these petrodollars combined with the process of the British Empire's doping, you know, the, 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 the drug trade uh, uh, were instrumental in restructuring Wall Street in the 70s and paving the way for the junk bonds of the 1980s and the derivatives of markets of the 1990s and the complete destruction and annihilation of the financial system you know, today. And that's what we have. And so uh, when the oil price of oil skyrocketed, that's you know, when this huge uh, pool of dollars began building up in Europe that formed, that formed the euro-dollar market and, and began this whole process of creating this financial empire as financial warfare operation, basically, against the nation states and in favor of Wall Street. And so, you know, in basically globalization was on the, uh, on the way or underway, and it's still underway today. And uh, this speculative bubble came to dominate American world economics, and, you know, feeding it became paramount. And between one thing and another, you know, real estate prices shut up, and they gave, you know, false wealth to these individuals who could, you know, turn into mortgage debt and, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, you have, you know, this, this derivatives market, which ultimately exploded and they falsely portrayed it as a subprime crisis. But in reality, it was the, the death throes of the financial system itself. And again, it was all orchestrated at these private, very secretive meetings because, again, progress and development of society 
is proportional to population density. So you have to make sure if you're the elitist controllers that the people, you and I, the great unwashed, they call us, would never have real wealth. You know, it's 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 ephemeral wealth. It's it's uh, it's something that's there, but it's not there. It can be taken away from us at any moment. And you know, we've mm-hmm. seen so much of it in so many different countries. You know, Argentina comes to mind, and and you know, Russia comes to mind. Uh, <clears throat> you know, in the 1990s, and and uh, so no matter how you look at it, the uh, the solutions taken by 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 the speculators and the in the in the markets and the big players basically are destroying banks and destroying nation states. And they're supposed to be destroyed, and that's why Detroit is what it is. It's not coming back. It's not supposed to come back. It's a prototype for the elite want the rest of the world to look like. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want to live in a world where everything looks like Detroit. Uh, certainly not, no. Um, so what, what did you ever or have you ever gotten a an insight or an idea into what motivates these people who do this fundamentally? What they Do they have a plan or is it just greed for greed's sake? Oh no no it's it's, it's very well planned. I mean you don't, I mean greed isn't something uh uh that uh <laughs> you you I mean you can pull this off if you talk about greed. This is something uh uh that they've been planning for uh, for a very, very long long time and uh Bilderberg has been around for sixty years and you know they've been at it for sixty years. But the idea itself of all destroying nation states, you know, it goes much further than that. It's just Bilderberg is again it's a name which Everyone understands uh, as you know, kind of a system of control. That's why you know I, I kind of talked about this. But again, you know, Bilderbergers—they've discussed this, this whole thing of of uh, controlling and creating this this society, One World Company Limited. Uh, George Ball talked about this back in 1968, and uh, and again, it was it's very very interesting because it you know it just gives you an idea how this stuff works. Uh, uh, destroying countries and, and creating uh, and creating uh, this, this corporation, mega corporation, and this isn't something you do, you know, on an off chance. It's it's very, very well, you know, planned out and thought out idea. Because you know, the idea again is that, according to them, this is how they sold it to us: <laughs> is that nation states are outmoded, they're an archaic form of government, and you know, in a Malthusian world, they can be relied on, you know, to do whatever needs to be done, you know, because. Again, the tendency is that the resources of a nation, if you are a nation state, belong to a nation. Well, if you're a Bilderberg, the resources of the nation state that don't belong to a nation, they've got to be equitably distributed amongst the people who control the world. And to do that effectively, they right. needed to create a new form of government. And, you know, and they called this, decided, you know, this form of government is going to be a corporation. That's what they call the, uh, the world company. And the idea would be that this world company, would then become the new government. And if you kind of look at globalization, that's exactly what this is. And then uh, beginning in the late 1960s, the 70s and 80s, the United States and the rest of the world was literally taken over this rash of mergers, this ever larger consolidation of industrial companies, of agricultural companies, of financial companies. And they were slowly building these giant cartels to the point where uh, we see now today these giant cartels which control the resources of the world, effectively, you know, they run the world. You have the bankers who run the corporations, the corporate the cartels, and the cartels controlling the necessities of life. And they're more powerful than the nation states themselves. And so this whole world company project, in a sense, is a return to the old days of the British East Indian Company with a more modern, you know, computerized face, I guess you could say it. And again, if you kind of think about it, you know, sit back and think about it, 
these people, the Bilderbergers and, and such, and, you know, others like them, they've actually done what they've announced they would do 50 years ago. And, you know, I'd be, you know, scared, you know, if, you know, if I didn't know better. And uh, because, again, for these people, the very structure of the nation states, the, the idea of commonwealth or general welfare people represented the main obstacle against any attempt to freely loot the planet and represented the most important impediment to the creation of a, a neo-colonial world empire. In, in other words, you know, as I said, the resources, they don't belong to a country, they belong to everyone. And that's something that they couldn't simply live with, you know, knowing that countries were going to protect their resources. And, uh, you know, so so uh, and if you look at, at the economies of the world, this is how all this stuff works. And this corporatism is basically the regimentation and mobilization of the state, including its credit and financial resources to carry out policies that are, you know, dictated by and implemented for the benefit of the financial oligarchy. And, you know, in the past decades, the entire deregulation policy of the United States, industries and banking, it was precisely set up in response to this blueprint scenario for uh, for creating giant corporations for a new empire whose intention is, is nothing short of, of perpetual war. And that's unfortunately, uh, you know, how all that stuff works. Right. So I'm just trying to get to the, trying to get to an idea of, uh, of what motivates these people. I mean, I, I can't suggest it was just greed, uh, but it's kind of amazing to think of that since most of the people we're talking about here are, are massively wealthy by, any normal person's standards, you know, they have more money than they could ever spend. So why would anybody it's come up with this kind of a plan? It's financial wealth. You know, it, is, it has nothing to do with financial wealth at all because they have, they already control not only money, they already control 90% of the planet Earth. It has to do with right. perpetuating their power. It has to do with, with you know, with, with immortality. And immortality to them is, is not, you know, dying and having somebody putting a plaque in their name in the middle of the square. Immortality is a different concept. Immortality, especially, you know, I, I talk about it in my last book, Trans Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction, where I basically explain, uh, you know, how, how the whole concept of, of the future of humanity has very little to do with what we are today. You know, the fact is that we're living through this, you know, change of paradigm, the greatest change of paradigm in the history of mankind. And the fact that, you know, the future generations are going to be, not look anything like us physically. Uh, our children who are six, seven years old today, they are the last truly 100% human generation of human beings on the planet Earth. Our grandchildren, or exactly our grandchildren, they're going to be a transhuman, they're going to be posthuman, they're going to be machines, they're going to be cyborgs, they're going to be beings who are not totally human as a result of uh, revolution in, in, in synthetic biology. So, you know, to be elitist, the idea of immortality is different. They don't care, you know, what physically they look like. That's what drives them. It's not the money. Because the difference between them and us is they have this little machine that can print it and we don't. You know, so they can print all the money they want in the world and we can't. So once we run out of the $100 bill we have, you know, for the rest of the month, we don't have any more $100 bills, but they can just print another one. You know what I mean? And, and for them, this is, has very little to do with their final objectives. Their final objectives is physical, you know, immortality and, and the idea of, you know, one day being able to download their consciousness onto our computer and live in cyberspace forever in another state, but, you know, having, you know, retaining their consciousness because of these incredible technological developments we're going through right now. So, you know, I, what drives them is this. Uh, you know, again, uh, if you look at Bilderberg, and that's why I'm 
unhesitant when people say to him, "Oh, you've discovered, you know, the the uh, the end of be all of conspiracies." I did not, and if, you know, someday I do, I'll be like ten thousand years old because I, you know, I haven't scratched the surface surface because the stuff is a circus. That's what it is. It's a goddamn mm-hmm. circus. But the, the fact is that <laughs> there's just so much stuff out there, so many societies, so many organizations, and and uh, it's it's just amazing when, when you start looking at all, all these individuals and, and corporations and people. And how how deep the rabbit hole goes, and just how how much is there, you know, to to investigate, you know, and to get at, and how little we know about really the world's, uh, you know, the uh, outermost secrets of of the world we live in. So, Daniel, are you suggesting that they, they want to sort of genetically modify the masses, or they want to genetically modify themselves to extend their existence, to extend their life? Well, life extension, it's, you know, life extension, their life extension is immortality. But, you know, I, I, I also believe in the concept of immortality. You know, for me, I, you know, I, in the 2010, I went to Cuba and I met Fidel Castro. He read my book on the Bilderberg Group and he loved it and he wanted to meet me. So he invited me to Cuba and I spent a week, you know, in, in being his guest. And uh, in, in uh, my three and a half hour meeting that, you know, I had with Castro, I, I said to him, and I said, like, I said, Comandante, how do you understand immortality? And, and you start talking about, you know, Karl Marx and Lenin and all this nonsense. And, you know, I kind of looked at him funny, I guess, at one point, and he kind of stopped because he realized that I wasn't a, you know, a Cuban uh, lackey was just going to sit, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, eat it all up. And so he said, okay, well, how do you understand immortality? And I said to him, you know, I, I think immortality, the whole concept of immortality is, is assuring the survival of the species, which means that, there's going to come a point where we're going to have to colonize space because if you start extrapolating our presence on the planet Earth into the future, a hundred years, a thousand years, 10,000 years, there's simply not going to have enough space and certainly not enough resources to survive. So we're going to have to conquer space. So the idea is a billion years from now, we, you know, we want to have gazillions of people living in all the nooks and corners of the galaxy and that's immortality, you know, for as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's an extension of life, you know, through, through others, you know, we'll be living our life, we'll become immortal because we've done, we've contributed, you know, to the growth of society, to the knowledge of society, you know, through our divine spark of reason. And it's it's just a very different way of understanding immortality from what they understand immortality because to them, immortality, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a metaphysical concept. And um, for me, you know, I, I I don't believe in God. And, you know, and even if I did, I, I couldn't tell you if there was God or not. You know, I mean, I was never there. You know, he never talked talk to me. So I can cross myself, you know, a hundred times a day or a thousand times a day, but, you know, I there's no guarantee I'm going to go to heaven or hell. It doesn't matter when I'm dead. What I am sure is, is what I said, the whole idea of immortality is that it's the extension of, of you know, us as people through others, our children, our, you know, grandchildren, and so on and so forth. The embodiment of immortality. And this is what secret societies have done for thousands of years. Past knowledge, you know, from grandfather to father, father to son, son to grandson, and so on and so forth which was mm-hmm. only accessible to very small groups of people. And then what happened today, after all these thousands of years, you know, as a result of information revolution, and, and, you, and you know, you have anybody, you know, a Koya Indian sitting in the middle of an Amazon rainforest uh, on a tree now, in a tree, with his computer laptop and an internet connection, and he has access through Google to almost the same information in all the secret societies, over thousands and thousands of years have basically been able to cobble together. And so the elitists are saying, you know, hell, what are we going to do now? Like these people, you know, these great unwashed, 
uh, these Mowgli's have almost as much knowledge as we do. And so what they're doing on the one hand is, again, it's, it's, these are intricate games, but, you know, they're kind of fun to watch. So they're not to you know, play part in it, but as we do, it's not very fun to watch. But on the one hand, what they're doing is they're destroying the world's economy on purpose. And you're seeing it right now. Mm-hmm. Detroit is a great example of that. Deindustrialization, zero growth, demand destruction. Clubber Rome talked about it way back in 1972. Well, 40 years later, here we are. They're talking about the next 40 years, you know, the demand destruction. <clears throat> so on the one hand, they're destroying the, you know, the world economy on purpose. But on the other hand, they're investing gazillions of dollars of their enormous, immense wealth into these futuristic technologies that are so advanced, so far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. You know, I don't care how fertile imagination is, we can't even imagine a lot of these things. Right. To make this gap between them and us bigger than ever, and if, you know, if you're a keen observer of reality, you look at Hollywood, which is an industry controlled by these people. You kind yeah. of realize that all these Hollywood, you know, futuristic films, science fiction, they Lucy, I talked about almost human a TV series, which was great, but they only aired one year. We had humans and, and, and the cyborgs working together as, you know, as police officers in the year 2048. It was a great series. There's just so much stuff out in that series, which dealt with very real things which are happening right now. Uh, Transcendence, which was an awful film with, with what's his name? Uh, 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 I can't remember. You know the guy from uh, Edward Scissorhands. I can't remember his name. Uh, um, oh. Anyways, Johnny Depp, you know, yeah. the, and the Southern film, which is coming out right now, it came out a few months ago. I haven't seen it yet. The Interstellar, we're talking about a planet Earth running out of food. Or you're talking about Elysium, which came out last summer. We had this kind of uh, synthetic planet built between the moon and, and Earth, where the wealthy lived and the rest of us lived here. It's the kind of stuff we've seen this divide between I'm, them and us. Just, have you seen The Hunger Games? Yeah, I saw the Hunger Games. I mean, it's it's dystopic. Right, it's, so that's the same I, thing, I thought, right? You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's the same thing. Like, you know, it's 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 lesser so well for you know what what it is because it's very predictable and then you know it's it's, it's kind of you know sheepishly stupid. But uh, the the idea is the same. You know, there's you know there's fight for food and there is fight for food. And even like things like GI Joe two, where it's not much of a film, but it's interesting because it started out with these uh, you know insects. Uh, uh, tiny insects which were uh, you know, charged and, you know, with bots, equipped with bots, we basically blew up and killed all the ro- all the uh, Joes, except for two or three, which of course came back and you know kicked the ass of all the bad guys later in the film. But the point is, is that uh, it, it you know it just goes it goes to show how you know, how advanced technology is. There's another film it hasn't come out. It's called Prototype. But if you kind of go to YouTube and type Prototype, it had like 200 million views. This trailer that. This, this this guy is you know trying to get the money to you know to make the film, but wow, does it ever look good? Uh, this merger of you know man and robot, and um, you know machine. There's another film just came out, and there's just a lot of stuff out there that's coming out, and and of course Hollywood is so much part of this Illuminati, and I do say Illuminati because that real is not some kind of silly you know <clears throat> conspiracy theory, but the point is that uh, if you kind of pay attention to what's out there you realize how little fiction is in science fiction and how real a lot of the stuff is and how that said uh, the elitists are on creating this, this, this parallel world. And for me, the best example and the scariest example, perhaps the stupidest film of all is, is 2012. I don't know if you saw it. The, uh, or the Maya prophecy. The film was just, just awful, oh, yeah. just god awful, just awful film. But there was a scene in that film. 
and it kind of, you know, jot him into uh, into realizing just, you know, how real the possibility of of that happening is. Where you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, they're literally minutes away from imploding or exploding. And you have all these uh, arcs, Noah's arcs, built by you know these billionaires, where uh, only the wealthiest of the wealthy, for a billion dollars, uh, you know, a piece, could go on these ships. And you have the Queen of England, and and you have these billionaires, Arab sheiks, and their families, and you know little dogs going as well. I don't know if the dogs got half price or not, but certainly, it's, you know, you look at all these. People and you say, you know, while the rest of humanity, all of us, you know, going to hell, literally, you have a few, I don't know, 10,000, 100,000 being saved because they can. And and uh, I thought, you know, it's wow, it's I thought that, that, that was powerful really, because if you kind of look at what's happening now and you look at some of the uh, ideas, not ideas, I can't think of a word, but some of the uh, projects in in, uh, in motion uh, currently and, and one of them is uh, you know 2018 uh, Mars One but that's the Dutch uh, private outfit they're sending you know an, uh, uh, a ship full of people to uh, um, to uh, to Mars on a one way trip uh, an expedition basically these are your you know pioneers they'll live there and they'll die there and the Russians and European Space Agency they're doing the same thing preparing one way trip to Mars by the year 2023. And so we're getting a lot of play in, in the media to you know these projects, and people are saying, "Wow, these people are not coming back." But you know, I have a different take on it. I think that, uh, yeah, call me a conspiracy theorist if you want, but there's you know, there's you know, a lot of the stuff is is based on, on on observations which over the years have always proved to be right on. Uh, you know, if they're talking about this, if they're playing it up in the media, the fact that you have you're gonna have the the you know the Dutch sending a a, a ship. Uh, to Mars, and the Russians, the European Space Agency are sending ships, you know, to Mars. What's what's there for us to think or not to think? If the elitists away from the spotlight, you know, will also be going to Mars without us knowing that they're going to Mars. And if that's the case, my question is, what is it they know that we don't? What's going to happen between now and 2018 or 2023? And if they are leaving, does that mean that you know this planet is finished? Does that mean that you know something is going to happen to us? Because with today's technologies, especially nanotech, if you're talking about you know real technologies and not talking about nuclear weapons, which is you know it's 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 past past history, past terms, past tense, and uh, and futuristic technology is so much more powerful than anything nuclear we can possibly imagine. Next step is fission fusion, you know. So, but my point is, that I think I'm getting off topic a bit. But you know, the point is that the survival of the fittest and the immortality that these people understand as such is very little to do with how we understand it. I guess I could have said this like 20 mm. minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, but it's good. It's, it's good to flesh out the the ideas. But I, I just on the idea of the elite all taking off to Mars, I'd be like, I would like, I would take, I would drive them to the to the spaceport, you know, and see them off, you know. It'd be kind of interesting, though, if they think that they're going to go to Mars maybe or something uh, because the planet's screwed and it's going downhill. But as soon as they leave, it starts getting better. And then they go, oh, let's come back. You know, it's not so bad anymore. But as soon as they come back, it starts going to hell again. You know? <laughs> they might eventually figure it out after a few... You know, I, I think I, I hear this a lot. You know, it's like, why do we want to conquer space? I mean, it's just like we, 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 we've screwed up our planet and we do want to do the same in other planets. It's not about that at all. It's, I mean, it's the fact is that you, you do have some nasty individuals who are destroying everything inside. That's true. But the humanity is, you know, we're not like that as people. But the point is that space, 
it's the final frontier. It also has all the natural resources that we need to survive on Earth, you know, beginning with helium-3 isotope, which is the, na- you know, cleanest natural source of, of, of energy we could possibly want to have. And we can't have it on the planet Earth because we have atmosphere, and it's something that, you know, can't get through the atmosphere. But it's something that's deposited over millions of years on all the planets out there that don't have atmosphere. So if you go for, uh, to the moon, for example, if you just scoop it up literally with your hand and you have enough on the surface of the moon to, to supply uh, the uh, you know the 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 next level of of energy to everyone on the planet for the next two thousand years and then and, and again it's, it's the cheapest the cleanest and the best and the longest lasting and so we've gone from uh, wood to uh, you know to carbon to uh, to or to oil <coughs> to nuclear is the next step in the you know in, in the development is fusion fission and we need to go that you know that direction in uh, in development because if we ever want to go to Mars you know, within a reasonable period of time. We need uh, a different kind of propulsion system than what we have today because if we go today, it's going to take us without getting into too many technical details. We basically need about 300 days to get to the moon, to, uh, sorry, to, uh, to Mars from, uh, from planet Earth and to the orbit. No, And uh, it, because of the problem of gravitation, when we get there, basically you'll be looking at, you know, this jelly bean with, with, you know, with eyes. And, uh, you know, that's not good for our bones. But the point is that if we are using fusion fission, we actually can go to the, uh, uh, to, uh, to Mars and about, uh, to the orbit in about four days, which needless to say makes a very big difference. And it's, it's, it's an amazing source of energy. And, uh, we need to get it. Plus all the other stuff out there on the asteroids and everything else from, from water to gold to, you know, to platinum to, to diamonds and everything else. You have everything in space, everything, absolutely everything. And, on the planet, we're running out of natural resources, and uh, so that's what we have to realize. And one of the biggest, the most important natural resources that we're running out of is, is, you know, is fresh water. And India, for example, is a good example. That's 1.3 billion people, and they're almost out of water. And, uh, you know, when you run out of water, it's, it's, it's um, bottoms up, the game is up. And, uh, yeah. you know, we, if we don't want that, we have to make sure that. But again, it all goes back to the same, to the same thing. It's the equitable development of the planet. The control by the people who run the world from behind the scenes, who've been running the world from behind the scenes, not since the Victorian times, but you know, since since the prehistoric times, the the uh, the times of uh, of uh, the Great Pyramids and and and, and uh, the Egyptian pharaohs and you know the same nasty individuals who ran the world back then, they still run the world today, and that hasn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. Daniel, what's your take on so-called climate change? Man-made, elite-made, natural, or just just irrelevant? I ask because I know there was a some kind of cheat sheet or, or set of notes leaked at a recent dish Bilderberg well, meeting like three or four years ago. Yep. Yeah. What was it, Joe? You know, it was just it? they had in the list of it was posted on the Guardian, the UK Guardian website. Uh, uh, you know, the, the topics to be explored at uh, I think it was 2008, maybe 2000, 2008 Bilderberg, maybe. Um, it was in Spain, somewhere in uh, near Barcelona. Sitges. Sitges in Barcelona, and they had a list there. That was 2010, and, um, yeah. Sitges was, was 2010. Okay. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing on the list, uh, I mean, it, it, hang on. But let me just finish on the, on the list. The reason we're asking is because on the list, amongst the other things that they had listed for, talk, uh, for topics of discussion, uh, one of them was global cooling, not global warming. Well, I mean, this is, this is exactly it. There's no such thing right now as global warming. I mean, in the middle of the period of, of global cooling, it's a 100,000-year cycle. And right now we're, you know, smack in the middle of a global cooling period, which is why in a lot of places like Canada, for example, right now, you know, my family lives in Canada. You, you know, you, last year, this year, you've had some of the nastiest, coldest winters on, you know, on, on record 
So all this stuff about global warming, it's, it's nonsense. If you kind of look at who supports these organizations, you look at, you know, international, you know, the World, World you know, Wildlife Fund, Greenpeace, but all these organizations, <clears throat> what are you talking about? Uh, a Club of Rome, or what are you talking about? You know, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, it hasn't changed in, in forever. It's, and the whole point of all these organizations where you're dealing with, with, uh, with them is, is, is deindustrialization of society. So if you can reduce progress, if you can reduce growth, then, you know, just, just makes it a whole lot easier, uh, you know, to control, uh, to control progress and growth of, uh, of society. And, uh, if you kind of, you know, go back a little bit, you know, to the role of the Club of Rome, but back in the, in the 70s, it just, you know, combine this scientific nonsense, which they advocate, uh, uh, the stuff about reducing technology and, uh, and, uh, uh, reducing, uh, growth, you know, they came out of a document limits to growth, you know, basically showed that earth was going to run out of limited, uh, resources in the next 40 years, well, 40 years later, we haven't run out of anything at all. We have run out of a lot of resources, but we have so much of it out there in space. We don't even need to talk about it and discuss this. And so basically, according to the club of Rome, this report limits to growth, in order for humanity to survive, mankind must reduce its dependence on technology, roll back its drive for progress, technological innovation and advancements, and impose a worldwide regime of economic control disintegration, which is what we have today. So organizations like, you know, WWF and Greenpeace, that's what they are. It's, it's this, uh, this, you know, this scientific nonsense, which they focus, focus kind of stuff of Aristotle and, and Malthus. You know, they combine it with sophisticated mathematical language and, and they convince the simpletons that it has to be the case. But a lie, even, you know, one enveloped in a mathematical complexity is no less scientific nonsense and stupidity what the Club Rome did was simply an extension of what would become the world's economy, extending existing parameters of the economy without technological progress. Now, obviously, if one removes that which enables the advancement of the economy and the human being, if that was eliminated and left out of the equation, well, you know, we suddenly discover that we're depleting our natural resources. And so this mumbo-jumbo, this planet, will reach a limit according to them, and therefore we must have a population control which leads to a demographic reduction. And so the role of the Club of Rome was simply to spread and popularize the scientific stupidity with the idea to convince the unwary, and especially young people, to give some kind of scientific base to profoundly anti-human concept <clears throat> of oligarchy. And, and the concept is that you're, you, know, you human beings are just animals, complicated, but nonetheless animals and nothing more than animals. And, and to them, environmentalist movement is, you know, equals to green, equals to deindustrialization, equals to zero growth, equals to population reduction, equals to genocide. It's not, you know, surprising that, you know, the, the people who basically ran these organizations, like WWF, or Prince Bernard, the Nazi who was the president of the Bilderberg Group, and then Prince Philip, the consort to you know to uh, to the Queen of England, who, who he if he ever came back to Earth and you know reincarnated, he wanted to be reincarnated as, as a deadly virus that wiped out the entire world's population. And that's you know that's what he said. But again, all this kind of stuff is is utter nonsense. And if you look at these organizations such as you know WWF and you know, 1001 Club, it's a kind of oligarchical funding mechanism, you know, to destroy the world's economy. And and what these people are not saying to you is, is that, you know, our greatest natural resource that has no limits is our mind. And the fact is that there are 7 billion yeah. people uh, or 70 billion people, 700 billion people 
We have the ability to discover universal principles of nature and these principles of nature, because we have this divine spark of reason. And these, you know, universal principles of nature, uh, once they're discovered, they improve the lives of everybody on the planet, killing space against nature, which immediately improve everybody's, you know, well-being for everyone. And that's progress and development. And so if you eliminate that element, if you give, you know, 7 billion people lobotomy, well, some of them don't need lobotomy. They've been lobotomized since birth, but, you know, as those of us who do use our divine spark of reason once in a while, the point is that if you lobotomize the entire population, then <clears throat> what you have is exactly what WWF, you know, professes, you know, this, this use and depletion, but it's not, the world is not like that. Okay, the world is different because there is such a thing as progress and development of society, invention and you know technology. And that's why we need to technologically develop because there's going to come a point in the in the history of development of society where we're going to have so many people that unless we have the technology, we won't be able to support life on the planet. And so we eliminate the industrialized society. We turn everything into Detroit. You're going to have a collapse in population base, and this is what they want. And this is why, you know, beginning in the 1960s, these, you know, the, the people such as Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, and, 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 the, and the Prince Bernard, the Nazi, actually they're both Nazis, you know, they created this world environmental movement, which they have, you know, the kind of a counter uh, culture social base beginning to be built up as a means to create the appearance of a mass social mode, but it was simply the oligarchy pushing the same old piece of population genocidal garbage, which they, you know, try to push on us for, I don't know how long now. And, and this, you know, this is just another good example of, of how Bilderberg and these societies work, because, again, when they're talking about Bilderberg, or Council for Relations, the Club of Rome, they're all united, they all work together. Because the people who, who yeah. you know, are members of, of these organizations, they're members of of Bilderberg and, and, uh, and Trilateral Commission and all these other think tanks and foundations. It seems strange to me, though, that if, if they're thinking in this long-term way about um, depopulation, or at least controlling a far smaller population, and if that would be the ultimate goal, that throughout this whole time they've been thinking and working towards something like that, the population of the planet has actually exploded. Well, it hasn't exploded, but, you know, it's certainly <clears throat> bigger than ever. That's for sure, because, you know, they, they, they try to kill us off so many times in so many different ways. And even on the, you know, Black Plague epidemic, they, they back in, you know, 1345, when we had, you know, half of Europe wiped out, you know, when uh, as a result of this first, you know, big economic meltdown when the body of the Peruzzi's banks went down and, and the whole thing was, you know, orchestrated by the Venetian black nobility. But, you know, even even back then, the population dipped, but very, very, you know, a little bit. And, but basically what has happened, and this is what they're working so hard to eliminate, is that in the beginning with, uh, uh, with the Council of Florence in, in the 1436-1739 period, uh, you had, uh, especially beginning in France, uh, under Louis the, the, uh, you know, the 11th, um, a, a different concept of humanity basically uh modern history replaced medieval history and and it replaced medieval history on the institutions which are part of the modern history events you know were put in place and and basically as a result of of council of florence uh france became the most important nation in the world until 
after the Napoleonic times, uh, you know, the progress and development of society, constitution, you know, welfare, social welfare, um, uh, commonwealth, all these concepts were developed and put forward, you know, in, in, uh, in France with Louis XI. And as a result of that, <clears throat> France became, as I said, the number one nation militarily, economically, culturally, spiritually, physically. And the British Empire had to create this, you know, this first little Nazi in history, which is Napoleon Bonaparte. Sort of he was an agent of Britain, but they certainly understood his psychology very well. And they pushed the right buttons, and, you know, they knew that he would eventually self-destruct, and he did. And so they created the, you know, Hakkabin Terror, which wiped out all the intellectuals in France. That was, you know, also a creation of the, of the British Empire, the whole thing of the seizure of Bastille. And, you know, that, that was all nonsense, because the idea was that the French intellectuals, you know, Lafayette and Bailly, the idea was to export the French Constitution uh, to the United States, um, or the French ideals, to the United States, have the United States uh, you know, create and build up the, the ideals there, and then import it back into Europe for the purposes of wiping out all the royal families. <laughs> and so England, or great England, the Venetian nobility, who basically became England at the time, uh, they took over the uh, you know the operation and they and they created this this the character because if you kind of go back and think to you know the, the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. The, you know, the, the British Empire had one enemy, that was France, which was a more powerful nation state than, you know, the, the empire. Uh, and then after the Napoleonic adventures, you know, France was destroyed, Europe was completely wiped out, and the only nation standing in peace was the British Empire, and all these other nations were against France, who until very recently, then, you know, at that time was the, you know, the number one country in the world and didn't have any enemies to speak of. And so all these shenanigans which, you know, way back then, they were kind of controlled by the British Empire. Today, they're still controlled by the Empire, except, you know, they've kind of reorganized themselves a bit, and, and they have these other organizations and offshoots and think tanks, And but the system hasn't changed. You've talked about Wall Street, which is basically a British, it's an American only name, it's a British creation. It was, you know, founded and put mm. together by the British, and it's still a British creation. And so it's, it's again, history, it's kind of an amazing thing, if you, if you think about it, and, and uh I guess all this stuff that you know, we're talking about, people who listen and people who you know read my books, and they suddenly realize that all these things that they kind of secretly thought were true but they couldn't really explain, now they could say, hey, this is cool. I can talk about this. And, and I guess this is what my book and, and now hopefully my film will, uh, will do is, you know, make it cool to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Dan, uh, Dan we have a uh, caller on the line, so I'm just going to go ahead and take it. Hi, Greg. Yeah, Greg calling from Nashville. Hi, Greg. You're welcome to the show. Do you have a question or comment for anybody? Um, I guess a bit of a comment. Uh, first of all, um, thank you for the conversation. Uh, more people no need to know what it is that you're talking about, and obviously Bilderberg is a huge piece. Um, and, and I'll just say this. When I call into a radio show, I try to remember the very simple maxim, do no harm, or don't criticize. It's mm. It's hard. Uh, to remember that because people get jumpy and, and they want to say you need this and you need that. Um, what I'm hearing, and, and I'm not attacking anyone, is I'm hearing the past problem and I'm hearing the present problem, but what I'm not hearing is individual solutions because what I have done is spent most of my life gathering information and cataloging the atrocities of these people that are currently basically running the show. 
and I understand that there's a very important place for that. That needs to happen because most of people in this world have no idea what you're talking about, and they have no idea the ramifications of what you're revealing to them. But I try to really bring it down to the least common denominator, and I don't mean in less of human intelligence. I just simply mean if I'm hearing this for the first time and I've never been exposed to what you're telling me and how important it is, what I want to hear is, what am I going to do to change the problem? And I'm not hearing any of that. I've been listening for at least an hour now. Can you comment on that, please, Daniel? All right. Yeah, and it is, uh, first of all, turn on the television. <laughs> That's the best advice I can give you. Uh, you know, it's, it's the state is crap. It's, you know, it's especially mainstream press. They never worked for, you know, for us. They've never worked for us and never will work for us. So anything you get from the media and the mainstream press is just, just mind-boggling nonsense. So turn off the TV and, and start thinking critically, start thinking platonically and Socratically, meaning, you know, uh, uh, abstract thinking, extrapolate ideas, ask yourself questions, you know, who is doing what to who and why they're doing this. And, you know, uh, uh, this is important. And also empowerment, you know, make sure that this kind of stuff, uh, you know, gets out there, that people can, you know, talk to each other. And But again, to do this, you, know, you kind of, you know, again, I have to make sure that, uh, you explain it in a way that everybody understands, you know, because one of the things that I hear often when we're talking about conspiracies is, you know, the Bilderbergers order the, you know, president to do this. And, of course, any normal person is going to say, well, how the hell did they do that? How did some guy sitting, you know, in an office in the middle of, I don't know, Rome order the president of the United States to do something? And, of course, they can't explain it because it all sounds like nonsense, which is why, it's again, it's very important. What you're doing like, is, is, is obviously fantastic if you catalog all this stuff. That's amazing. It's important to understand who these people are. It's important to know their names. So when you watch on television, there's countless, you know, faces, and you know, unless they're called Kim Kardashian or, 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 or Obama, we don't know who most of them are, but we must know them because they're, you know, they're, they're, there's, you know, there's grease, you know, gray individuals in flannel suits uh, who kind of parade in front of our TV screens and make pronouncements, and then we don't even realize that this is the guy who runs the European Central Bank. Well, this is a man who is, you know, the, the, the key commissioner in, in European Commission on, on, you know, foreign intelligence. And this is a man who, you know, versus monies and, you know, Federal Reserve, know the names of these people, know what they do, understand that this is real, get as much information as you can, turn off the television, you know, be a human being, and most importantly, you know, whatever you do, and make sure that you work towards the future of humanity because, you know, life doesn't end with us. We are here for a purpose. And I'm not talking you know, from, from a religious point of view. I'm talking from a metaphysical point of view. The point of view is that as long as we live, we have an obligation to do good for humanity. And that's, I think, one of the you know, biggest maxims one can live by. What do you think of that, Greg? Uh, I think that was excellent input. Uh, I love it. Turn off television. That's, that's probably one of the things that I tell people is the most important um, if there's poison coming into your body, you need to stop the flow of the poison, and television is the biggest source. Uh, think critically, mm. beautiful advice, and empowerment, obviously, and, and that's part of what the show is about. Um, but the, Greg, uh, I, I, I just wanted to say something um, on that point. Um, when you mentioned that most people in the world have never heard any of this information, and it doesn't really mean anything to them, and they've been kind of programmed. They they get their daily dose of reality from the, the the media, and they kind of a lot of them like it that way. And they would react 
with, uh, you know, they would be incredulous about this information on anything, that, the kind of things we talk about. They don't believe it. It's almost like it's not for them. I mean, I've kind of come to a conclusion that there are a lot of people, the majority of people on the planet, uh, that this kind of the stuff that interests uh, you and me and, uh, and, and Daniel and other people listening uh, is kind of... Uh, it's kind of for us and not for other people. If you, you know what I mean? There are different types of people, and some people just want a simple, ordinary life where they're not challenged. They don't. They aren't forced to think uh, outside the box. They're not forced to feel it. They don't want to feel a sense of responsibility for changing the world. That's what our leaders are for, uh, etc. And, and there's, I, I really do think that there are people who you can't change in that way. You know. So it's kind of like banging your head against a brick wall for anybody to try and think that they can change those masses of humanity in any fundamental way or bring them up to quote-unquote our level, you know. Um, the more I look at the way the world is going and the people in, in power in this world and what they're doing and how little uh, power ordinary people have, even us have, to, uh, who, who know what, a lot of what's going on, how little power we have to affect any change, I kind of more and more find myself taking the falling back or into the role of a uh, Almost as if my my purpose here is to be a a, a kind of a, an anthropologist studying uh, the kind of dynamics on on planet Earth within the human population and 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 kind of document it. You know, put it out there publicly, do your bit, and you know, there's a lot of compassion for all of the evils and wrongs that are happening in the world, but it's tempered by an understanding that we can't do much about it, and that's why I tend to fall back into well, I'm just going to observe, watch the show as it goes down, be amazed at, and horrified as well at, at, at many of the things that happen. And then where it goes, really, I don't pretend to have any power uh, to, to change it. And I'm not sure even uh, a large enough, there's a large enough group of people on the planet uh, who would be able to get this information to, to be able to change it. You know, the people in power have such uh, control over things that it's going to go the way they uh, want it to go with the with the caveat, though, that the planet itself seems to react to stuff that's going on on the planet at a human level. I mean, we've seen a massive increase over the past um, few years in things like uh, fireballs and meteorites. We had that explosion over Russia uh, last year over Chelyabinsk, uh, the, the incident of, uh, incidents of volcanoes and earthquakes, tornadoes happening all over the place. The, the planet at, on an ecological level, on a, on a climate level, uh, seems to be reacting to the weird stuff, that the, the negative stuff that, that is happening at a human level. So that's a factor that, that I think should be remembered as well, that uh, to a certain extent the planet has its own consciousness and it reacts in, a, in its own way to things that are going on, you know? It, it does, and, and I think you made a very uh, beautiful point in terms of what you said about a, a big number of people not either wanting to be reached or unable to be reached. And, and if you're listening and you happen to be a teacher or a purveyor of this type of information, I think that's very critical that you hear and understand that. I happen to be a teacher of this type of information. And the bottom line is simply this. If we get, if I get into a mode of I need to save these people, no, that is the wrong way to come into this. I've, I've been there. I beat my head on the wall. You know, there's 7 billion people and I need to save as many as possible. No, no. If you have one mm -hmm. conversation with one human being and it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that I change or turn them, it just simply means maybe they look at something a little bit differently. Maybe they stop mm -hmm. doing something that was destructive to them and they see things in a slightly different light. It's okay. Yeah. My job, 
to save anyone. It's not to save anyone. It's just simply to know whatever the truth is for me is to share it with other people. That's all I can do. And if it falls on deaf ears, it's okay. And, and I'm not a proponent of the what the text known as the Bible, but there is a little bit of wisdom in there. Don't cast your pearl to swine. People that aren't listening mm. or who don't want to hear, stop talking to them, and talk to people mm. that do. Oh, Amen. Thank you so much for your for your. Mm. Absolutely. Show. I really appreciate it. Listen, no I, I know we have a, just a couple of minutes left. I know we have a couple yeah. of minutes left. I wanted to uh, just mention my uh, my fundraiser on the Bilderberg documentary, if I may. Yep. It's uh, you know I, as I said earlier in the show we, uh, the documentary is coming out of theaters all over the world at the end of uh, May early June and we're just in the last final stages of getting the post production done and over with over the next couple of weeks and we're bringing some top experts on graphic design and animation just to make this you know a little bit better than it is and it's already an amazing film we have a lot of interest from international film festivals etc so what we've done is. I've started a, a fundraising campaign, a crowdfunder on Rocket Hub. And if you can help us out just a little bit, you know, five, ten dollars if we get two thousand people, we're gonna have more than enough money to finish it. So it's already a two hundred thousand dollar film which we have funded ourselves over the past four years, so it's not some peep squeak little project. No, it's a very big project. And we just need another twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars about to get this done. So if you can go to Rocket Hub, type in Bilderberg, it's gonna take you to the page. And uh, donate. You get some, you know, nice prizes uh, as a compensation. But most importantly, you're helping a very, very good cause. It's not just the film itself. It's the fact that this year, Ed Snowden won the Oscar. Uh, you know, as a result of Citizen Four, and he certainly deserves it. Uh, but this whole thing about uh, social awareness and people becoming aware on a global, you know, level of what's going on around us, he can certainly help us next year with with getting the information about and out on the Bilderbergers themselves. So if you can, go to Rocket Hub, type in Bilderberg, go to the page, and help us out if you can. It will be very, very appreciative. And you can also see the, the two-minute trailer of the film, which uh, we did uh, a few weeks back, and I think you'll be very, very surprised It's just how, how awesome it looks. Okay, yeah, definitely. So that's Rocket Hub, but is it linked on your website? Your website's danielestaline.com, right? Yeah, people, if, you, if they want to follow me, the easiest way to follow me is with, through my Twitter account. It's at Estulin Daniel. That's my Twitter account, at uh-huh. Estulin Daniel. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not on my, uh, my, uh, on my, on my uh, webpage. It's, uh, it's on my uh, Twitter account, but uh, Twitter. they can certainly okay. just go to Rocket Hobbit, just type in the name. Okay. Excellent. Okay, then we're going to let you go. Thanks a million for uh, being on. It's been a very, very interesting conversation, to say the least. It was an interesting conversation. We've certainly touched on the subjects, which I haven't talked about for a while. You know, we've, we've been talking about other stuff, and, and right now we're doing a lot of promo because I was just nominated for Nobel Peace Prize, and that's one of the things I forgot to mention. And uh, yes, cool. I actually did forget to mention it. Yes, and, uh, and so we did a lot of... They're up there, a lot up there of with Obama. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think he gives any nomination of that name. But 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 the point is, is that you know it's as a result of all the work I've done in the last twenty years of exposing these people, you know, to the light of day. And and so I was nominated about a month ago, and uh, it's, it's 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 a great honor because some amazing people were nominated over the centuries, over the, the last century. Obama is not one of them. But the point is, is that uh, you know, so we're doing a lot of interviews about just current stuff, and you know, it's nice to talk about Bilderberg once in a while as well because. These are the kinds mm-hmm. of things I haven't. I don't talk about very much simply because I've moved on to other, I think, more interesting, you know, areas of, of investigation. 
But I think we certainly touched mm-hmm. on some, some, some key ideas, which hopefully will get people interested in, in the subject of Bilderberg itself. Yeah, well, I hope you... Uh... I hope you win the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it'll be some well-deserved publicity. I mean, it's, it's not necessary. Just because Obama, Obama won, it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean it's such a bad thing. I know if you're, won't, them, if you're not, saying the right message, point. you won't. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But nomination's exactly. good enough, you know. Nomination's right, good enough. And again, one last time. Rocket Hub, okay. Bilderberg, help us out. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank Take you, care. Have Take a good care. Bye-bye. Uh, Greg, you're still on. Yeah, um, and I say this with all due respect, absolute, absolute respect for your previous gentleman who just spoke. All I can say is, wow, everything I said and all I heard from him was a promotion for fundraising. I'm, I'm floored. I'm completely floored. And my next comment is simply this. How is higher awareness of Bilderberg activity going to lessen the fact that the Bilderbergs meet and do and influence the world in the way that they do? Well, I don't think, for me anyway, uh, I mean, I talk, uh, I, I write quite a lot on, 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 you know, what we do here is, uh, apart from this radio show, we have other areas or venues that we use to talk about what's going on in the world. And we have no intention or no expectation that we're going to change any of it. What we're doing is simply talking to the people who are listening to us and reminding them that uh, you know, the world is a pretty screwed up place. It's run by a bunch of psychopaths in power and uh, that they shouldn't allow themselves to be lulled into a false sense of kind of security or or calm or peace, you know, or, or forced to turn their face away or to be distracted or by... Or to misplace their hope. Or to misplace hope. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't... To be fair to Dan, I don't think he's promoting this stuff all the way through. He was talking very quickly about an awful lot of stuff. It was just at the end. But he had asked to kind of like, uh, you know, if he could promote uh, what he's doing because, you know, that's fair enough. That's an equal exchange as far as we're yeah. concerned. But just on the points that he's talking about, like talking about Bilderberger or talking... I mean, you could ask the same question of, um, of us or anybody else. You know, why... Why do we write about the evils of uh, of NATO and, and and their warmongering and you know their their, their slaughter of, of of Muslims in Iraq and Libya and Syria? I mean, we're not going to stop them doing that, but we feel it from a, from a conscience point of view that we have to actually speak up in whatever way we can publicly about that because it's wrong. It's a simple thing, a simple uh, right versus wrong thing, and and to, to remind those people that are that are watching and listening, uh, that, that this is what's happening, this is what's going on. It hasn't gone away. The world hasn't transformed into some peaceful utopia yet. It's actually getting worse and worse. As to what people should do about that, for me, uh, you know, I could talk to people about what they can or can't do, or what, but none of it's based on, um, on the idea that we can change any of it necessarily not at least not in a physical way you know um yeah we're not going to get our day and we're not going to get our day in court with these warmongers you know um, but what's important for these people is to is just what, yeah. what's important for these people is to simply watch to keep watching to keep observing to keep looking at what's going on don't turn your face away recognize yeah. the suffering and yeah. i don't know where it goes from there but at the very least that's what we have to do i'm, I'm glad you said that um it, it's so powerful what you said this isn't about getting your day in court because that's the 3D world. That's the illusion. You know, that's the system. Right. That's yeah. what the Bilderbergs is built. And, and I love that because a lot of people um, still believe that their justice will come in court. And that is the, that's the den of vipers. That's where they operate. Right. You, you and yeah, it'll, it'll come in court. 
Yes. It'll come in court or it'll come in revolution or regime change or whatever. No, Thank it you. won't. I do. And, and let me just yeah. ask you, this is just an offshoot thing. It's, it's been a long time uh, since I bumped into these two fellows and, and, and they have a, a good place in the world. Uh, what are, what are, what's your opinion, just generally speaking, of uh, like an Alex Jones or a David Icke? They, they kind of got me started, got me chewing on this stuff and sort of pointed me in the right direction. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, um, it was the same for me. A lot of people uh, come into this mm-hmm. kind of get their initiation, I suppose, by those people because they're quite those two that you mentioned that they're they're quite high profile. Um, uh, but and a lot of people stick with them, I think, as well, which is maybe a problem. But because um, David Icke for me is uh, he's kind of like new age spirituality behind it all. He talks a lot about politics and uh, over the past recent years, but he started out with uh, very much kind of. Um, alternate realities and reptilians and higher dimensions and you know the queens are reptilian and you know basically a kind of mishmash of a lot of new agey type stuff that has come out over the past few decades and uh and he talks a lot about pseudo physics kind of like uh, full physics type concepts and stuff to try and convince people that i mean what i get from him is that uh, we're all just energy and if we just think and believe understand that we're energy we can transform everything uh, everything can be changed in, in, a, in a moment if i just understand that i'm just you know, atoms, you know, organized in a certain form. If I understand that, then I can do whatever I want with those atoms and I can change them and I can walk through a wall or walk through a door, you know, <laughs> a closed door. And um, for me, that's a lot of garbage, you know, a lot of new age garbage. It may be, some of it may be true at a kind of higher level, but it doesn't apply to the average person uh, on this planet, including us uh, right yeah. now. And no, nobody has the power to do that. So he's selling a, he's selling a dream, basically, to people. And... Um, but then I, I kind of have to uh, come back a little bit from that because I do like a lot of the stuff that he's done recently in the sense of uh, political stuff because he's on the money about uh, the, the geopolitical uh, shenanigans that have been going on for, for a long time in terms of East versus West and NATO and the one world government and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he talks a lot about that. So, But I have a problem with him because I think fundamentally anybody who goes too deep with him is going to be deceived. And Alex Jones <laughs> is like... You know, AJ. What is it, 1776 will rise again or will happen again? Yeah, come and take our guns away. He's Uh, he's egging people towards that revolution that ain't going to come or will be a mess. Yeah. And and I like the way that you you said what you said. I'm not just agreeing with you because you took my call. I'm with you. There's balance. David and I put out some really good information, um, and so does Alex. He does. Um, but as we mature, I believe as we, and if you're listening, as we mature, as we come into this knowledge, and for some it's new, for some it's old, and if if you feel like it's old and you've been listening to this for a really long time, um, there's different ways to expand your awareness. There's different ways to make it fresh for you because you're like, God, this world sucks, and seven billion people are blind, and I'm the only one. Don't feel that way. You know, you heard these people. We're not here to save anybody. I love it though. Alex taught me simply this: just pay attention. And I am not a patriot. I don't get into the 1776 revolution. That's all nothing but a repeat of why we're in the mess we're in here in the U.S. And David Icke is is very broad knowledge, awesome awesome information. Um, But the fact that the queen is a reptile is a little hard for me to swallow. Um, I understand what they say when they mean blue blood. Some say it's because they ingested silver. Some say it's because they're reptiles. I don't really know. I've never talked to the queen, but I do know this. Does it matter? Uh, it doesn't really matter because I live in Nashville, Tennessee, 
And you could say, well, it does affect your reality. I mean, does it really? I just try to get it down to the, you know, the meat and the potatoes on the table, my family and my, what I'm doing. And I'm just, I'm really glad that you guys are talking about this stuff. Um, but I, I think it's sort of, I think what a lot of people have done in this genre of information, and myself included, is we stay addicted to what's out there way out in the stratosphere, the Bilderberg mm. and, and the Queen, and, and it, because it's, it's celebrity is what it is, and we get addicted to that, and we forget how to affect mm. change in our own households, and I'm, you, 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 just, you sound balanced. And and just there's some harmony there. What I'm hearing, and I just I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for saying it, Greg. Um, do you have you ever uh, visited our website, thought.net? No, I mean this is the very first time I've ever even seen your show on Blog Talk. Okay, okay. Well, we have a website called sott.net, but uh, I think you might actually enjoy our forum. It's not directly linked to the to the website. I mean, there's not a direct link from it, but the, our forum that's kind of but it talks about a lot of other stuff. Uh, the website is, uh, has various different categories, covers the news in various different categories, and we have editorials and stuff on there. But our website, which is cassiopeia.org, it's C-A-S-S-I-O-P-A-E-A.org, it, it's a website that covers an extremely broad, broad um, uh, range of, of topics, and it's been going for, for, for quite a long time. And uh, I kind of just, it's just my instinct that the, uh, uh, that the way you're you're talking about things that you might actually find that forum quite interesting. If you're looking for people who kind of you know share your opinions and maybe challenge your opinions or you could challenge their type of thing, uh, it's a good website to uh, it's a good forum to have a look at. Just a thank you. FYI. Very much. I appreciate that. No problem. All right, Greg, we'll let you go. Yes. Have, have a thanks good week. Call. Bye bye. You too. Thanks, Greg. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, a little, little um, conspiracy theory on David Icke. He came along in like the 80s. He was on Wogan, TV show Wogan. He first made, came yeah, out kind of thing publicly on Wogan where he said he something. was the son of God. No, it was the, it was the, well, maybe it was 90, yeah, late 80s, early, early yeah. 90s. Uh, he, he was on this uh, chat show, uh, Terry Wogan, um, in the UK, and he's, that's where he said he was the son of God. And that's how he, he was, he's a former footballer, goalkeeper for an English football club. Uh, and then he was a TV presenter. He went from football into presenting, um, you know, on a sports, mm-hmm. presenting the sports channel. And then he became the son of God. And suddenly, a, just a transformation, a, a road to Damascus, quote unquote, type experience, you know, a revelation to him suddenly turned him into the son of God. And he went on this uh, this journey, this track that he's been on since then. Uh, but I always thought it was interesting that um, that kind of thing when that happened to someone it happened he was in the UK uh, about probably 15 years later or 1998 about 15 years later uh, there were two British MI5 agents uh, Annie, uh, Annie, Mah- Annie Mahan and David Shaler yeah. and they had to go on the run from MI5 because they had, were releasing information about how MI5 was in bed with Al-Qaeda more or less and that they had plotted to assassinate Gaddafi right Exactly. Yeah. Using their Arab terrorist proxies. Yeah. Uh, she is still on the level. Uh, but he, when he went back to the UK, very quickly, 
And this is like, I mean, I don't know, you could question his mental stability previously or whatever, but he seemed like a very normal guy. And when he was talking just in the maybe short period of time after this came out and he was able to speak about it, he was very lucid and very, um, you know, uh, very eloquent in his, in, his, in his talking about it. And then within a period of a few months, he just went straight downhill. And one of the things that he eventually said, I started to say, was that he was the son of God, that he was Jesus, basically, yeah. in almost the same way as Ike did. And um, and then it went kind of a bit further where he became a woman. Essentially, he picked a new name, as a female name, and he started dressing as a woman. Yeah. But I always had a question over that in terms of, I mean, we know, it's just in science fiction now, we know that there is technology has been for quite a long time where people can be, their minds can be messed with through yeah. uh, projected audio into their heads, telling them to do things, etc. just with microwave, actually. Beamed, basically. Yeah, basically microwave beaming where they can vibrate the, uh, uh, you know, your inner ear, uh, send impulses to your inner ear that will mimic speech, basically, the same frequency of speech, and they can make you hear things from a distance. And that's just one example of the kind of things that have been, and this is from, I think this paper was written in the 80s, a scientific paper in the 80s or before. Was Del, that Delgado guy, I think he's Jose No, Delgado no, no, him. this was more of an actual mainstream oh. kind of scientific paper saying that this was, so that little thing, they got, so that kind of thing can happen, you know, so messing with people's heads and making them believe they're Jesus. Uh, you know, driving them crazy through voices in their head until they start saying that Jesus is is plausible. Uh, so that you know, it's just a little concept or idea on uh, on the origins of Ike, maybe you know, and what he is today. But who knows? I mean, as long as people keep saying the right thing, and the uh, the higher the signal to noise ratio is in terms of they don't deviate from it, it's just yeah. the truth and nothing but the truth. Well, then you can you can go with it, you know. Yeah, you know, share it, support it. We we sometimes put some of their stuff on, like Alex right. Jones, Infowars, that right. gets on solid. I mean, if they say something yeah. that's truthful. Yeah. doesn't mean we agree with everything else he says, but if no. he says one thing truthful, we're not promoting him. We're just copying uh, uh, something he said or repeating something he said. Um, yeah. There's been plenty of other people. Someone on the, on the chat room just said the same, the same kind of mind, mind mad, meddling or interference with people's minds was done with the guy who killed Anna Lindt, the Swedish left... Uh, Leftist oh, foreign yeah. minister. I mean, well, a lot of these people, these lone nuts. Well, you know. the, the guy who was involved in the DC Navy Yard shooting, mm. um, black former U.S. naval officer, uh, not naval officer, is in intelligence. Anyway, mm. he was now working for a contractor, and he told police there's a whole backstory. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was made up. He was telling police he was hand turning himself in five months before telling them that the shooting that they were that, beaming uh, stuff into his head. Somebody on an airplane was. Beaming beaming and they were chasing me down the corridor in mm -hmm. my motel and mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably some substance to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think there is. You know, I mean, you can go back a long way. You can go back to Sirhan Sirhan and the shooting of Bobby Kennedy, you know. I mean, we had a show on that where his lawyer, uh, this was the, I think it was the Alberelli show, the Hank Alberelli show, mm. uh, where we interviewed him and we had an audio uh, of... Uh, speech or a talk by Sirhan Sirhan's lawyer at the time who, uh, just not long after he was put in prison for shooting Bobby Kennedy, the lawyer got a hypnotist in, into the cell and uh, hypnotized him very quickly and very easily and um, told him to climb up. And the lawyer was present for this and told him when he tapped him on the head after putting him under just very quickly, he said, when you wake up, you're going to climb up the bars of the cell. Uh, of the cell and start uh, making monkey noises. 
So he tapped him on the head and threw hand, threw hand up the bars he went and started making monkey noises. And then he kind of tapped him again and he told him to come down and took him out of it. Uh, or no, before he took him out of it, when he asked him, Sir Hans, why are you up at the, the bars acting like a monkey? Uh, who, who told you to do that? He said, nobody told me to do that. I did that myself. I chose to do that. I mean, this isn't science fiction. This is well-known, you know, psychological fact, basically. There's, you know, that, that people can be hypnotized to do... I mean, there's been... Sh- people, I used to go to shows when I was young, you know. Once or twice I went to hypnotist shows where people on stage were made to cluck like chickens. And I knew some of them. And I have no reason to believe when they told me that they didn't know why they did it. Like, they, or they, they, they weren't kind of aware. They know they did it, but they didn't know fully why they did it. But, you know... It's no reason to disbelieve that people can be made to do things yeah. that they wouldn't normally do. People are malleable, but going back to what Greg was saying, <clears throat> um, that doesn't mean that we're all exposed and, oh my God, people tend to get paranoid when they hear a lot of these things, especially when it's coming through yeah. alternative media sites like Ikes or mm-hmm. Alex Jones. They freak out because mm. they're hearing all that and they're going, but, but, but the thing is, the, the other side of it is the accumulation of information, true information, knowledge as much as you can of it, protects you from right. such predations. Right. You see, that's, right. that's, that's the, the how and the why together. Mm-hmm. The ends and the means are all, what do I do? What do, I do? Well, you keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You collect correct information. You become more balanced in all areas of your life. Mm-hmm. And that is your mission, in quotes. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. what you do. Yeah, that's what you do. You're not here to affect any great changes on a planetary scale. You're here, if anything, just to, uh, yeah, to learn and to grow and to observe and if you're inclined that way to, to pay strict attention to what's going on on this planet today, because it's very important for your own understanding of how the world works and maybe how the, the broader kind of uh, universe works type thing or the forces at play, you know? I mean, you can follow that. Uh, you go down the rabbit hole as far as you want, I suppose, but, you know, you do need to protect yourself along the way and make sure that you're they're not being led on a kind of wild goose chase, you know? Um, and the way to one, another way to protect yourself from that is to is to have a kind of a network, a network or a group of people who are kind of like-minded and know those concepts as well and understand those dangers. And you can check each other. You know, you can. Yeah. Uh, they can tell you when you're going a bit confused. Right. Yeah. And they're yeah. not involved in something particular that you're doing or researching. They can give you some external, more objective feedback. You know, and that's a very useful safeguard against uh, being led down the garden path. Anyway. Uh, well, we leave it there. We don't want to say anything about Russia, do we? Well, I wanted to ask Daniel's take on it, but I, I have a good uh, feeling. I know what he would have said. Yeah, I think he, he gets it that yeah. Putin's being I would say the thing about this guy, squeezed by the powers of be. There's an Emsov guy who was killed. Mm-hmm. He was killed not because of how important he was, but because of how unimportant he was, because how insignificant, because he wasn't that useful yeah. uh, to the people who killed him. So he was killed, uh, and that gives that gives a, that exposes the kind of lie of the, of the Western media of what they're saying that they're saying the opposite that he was killed because he's such a threat. Uh, but in fact, the truth is another example of how you can turn the Western media angle completely on its head. They're saying that he was killed by Putin. They're implying it in some way or other that he was killed by Putin or someone within the Kremlin because of he because of the threat that he posed to the Kremlin and to Putin. The truth is he was killed. Because he was insignificant and he, uh, he was expendable, in fact. Yeah. Which means that he was not killed by Putin. He was killed by the enemies of Putin 
and he was useless to them because, in fact, he was. I mean, the BBC even had to admit this, that the guy had fallen off the radar politically. He was not a prominent uh, Russian politician. He was actually, uh, he was kind of uh, supplanted or uh, uh, replaced by the Navalny guy who was under house arrest and his gang who are younger than the guy who was shot and they're more uh, social media savvy. They came on the scene within a few, uh, over the past few years and used the social media, civil society, open society kind of techniques of activism and they, that's why they are the, they're the main op- opposition, main phony opposition now. Uh, the Nemtsov guy, he was a has-been. Uh, so he was the perfect choice to be to get the last bit of use out of him, effectively, you know, yeah. through killing him, it's sick. The bastard of use to demon his, his whole life, his whole his whole career. I mean, in over the past ten years, let's say, his career has been funded by the U.S. government, the U.S. State Department, to attempt to destabilize and overthrow Putin. He kind of failed in that attempt. He was no longer useful, but they can get one last use out of him by killing him. I'm trying to blame Putin. It's sick, but it's that's the way those people think. That's the way they think. That's, that's, that's their logic, in quotes. It's just straight through, you know, problem, reaction, problem, reaction, solution, yeah. thing. You know, it's just like... Uh, they might have, BBC might have said, well, actually, caveat, he wasn't that important on the 20th paragraph, but the headlines in the London press are very clear that this guy, or well, the message, the, the suggestion, they're not actually stating it, but the suggestion is obviously... This guy who was killed was the leader of the opposition. I know, but they totally Russia. spun that. They <laughs> completely know. spun that. That's a complete and utter lie. I mean, you go and you can find various sources within Russia and outside Russia who all say he was a has-been. He had lost it. He was, he was off the radar. He was not significant. He hadn't achieved what he tried to achieve. He couldn't even get 5% of the vote in the, last, in the 2011 election to actually run for any kind of run for parliament or run for, uh, run for the presidency. His party got... I mean, they say he couldn't even get 5%. I think it was because he got like 0.5%. Like mm. nobody voted for this guy. So what kind of opposition is that? And this is one thing I, I mentioned somewhere was that, uh, just so people know, the opposition, the West is talking about the opposition in Russia, right? The, the, that this guy who was killed was a leader of the opposition and the opposition against Putin and the liberal opposition as if they're some big shakes. The opposition, when you talk politically, the opposition is the party that is not in power, but is the next biggest party to the party in power. The second biggest party in the country. Yeah, that's what That's what the opposition is. In yes. the UK, right now the Conservatives are in power with the, with the Liberal Democrats as a, as a coalition, but Labour is the opposition because mm-hmm. they're out of power, but they're the next biggest party. In Russia, it's the same in, in, in most Western countries. In Russia, it's no different. The second biggest party in Russia is the Communist Party. Oh, we can't mention that. That's the opposition. So if you want to cover opposition rallies in Russia, cover like that actually opposition that represents a significant portion of the will of the Russian people who don't agree with Putin, you look to the next biggest party, which is the Communist Party. So when they have rallies, the BBC and New York Times and CNN should be reporting on those rallies and saying, here's the opposition rally, here's the significant opposition rally in Russia, waving their communist flags. But they don't do that for some reason. Because that's not the kind of opposition that they want there to be in Russia that doesn't exist. They want a Western liberal, uh, I could use lots of other words, but I want Western liberal, uh, open society, civil society 
opposition in Russia. That's the kind of one. They want a Western model of opposition inside Russia. And they don't have it, so they create it. They throw money at it, and they try over and over and over again. And the Kremlin doesn't have to do anything about it because it has no traction in Russia. Because most Russian people are like wise to what's going on and aren't interested in that kind of Western bullshit, Western liberal bullshit. You know, sure, there were 10,000 people who came out uh, for the march today that was pre-planned. Although uh, they came out under a different banner. Come out under a different banner with his, his picture and Russian flags and stuff. But 10,000 people in Moscow isn't a lot of people. And especially, it's actually not a lot of people when you see, when you, when you consider the fact that a lot of those people would have been out simply in sympathy with someone who was assassinated, yeah. uh, tragically assassinated or, or uh, cruelly assassin, assassinated uh, you know, in Moscow and who was, a, who was known by a certain amount of people. You know? So the fact that there were 10,000 people in the street doesn't mean anything. That's not a really big opposition. Well, well, the been, communists can have like 500,000 people on the streets tomorrow in Moscow. It would have been interesting if the Russian government had encouraged people to come out from the point of view of, well, a guy was shot dead unjustly. Right. And then they'd had millions waving Russian flags, and they would have spun it in the West as one thing. Yeah. <laughs> but it would have been to- something totally different. I know. And they're like, no. here we go, here we go, this is it. We've gotta get, we're going to get the Maidan in Moscow. Wait, it's not happening. No. I, actually, about the Maidan in Moscow, I mean, there were a number of Hang Russian on, people. Got, so, oh, Nemtsov was part of the corrupt, yeah. And also the phrase. This this may have been planned in the sense that the Maidan in Moscow idea was being talked about in Russia as being planned for this spring. So there might have been a timetable. It well, fits it's pretty, with the sanctions, with everything else. It's being pretty pathetic attempt, though. I know. Well, they're going to need to do an awful lot more. I mean, you consider what they did and they had to do in Ukraine. Months of preparation, whipping people up, throwing millions of dollars at phony NGOs in Ukraine and then having a months-long uh, protest camp on Maidan Square, increasingly violent, you know, and then eventually shooting over 100 people over two days. That's what they needed to do in Kiev, in Ukraine, or specifically Kiev, to be sure of a coup, of a revolution that actually worked. Shooting one guy outside the Kremlin, uh, um, I reckon that's gonna, yeah, you're gonna need a little bit more. Um, but of course, I think so. In that, can, in that sense, I just place it in the context of the continuing, continuing Asymmetric propaganda, role. demonization of Putin by the yeah. West, just to, to to put pressure on him to try and you know smear him as much as possible. You know, I mean, the next thing will be that like, they killed our Lord Jesus. You know, somebody, the CIA or the State Department will find some document on Facebook that says that Putin killed Jesus. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> so and that'll be added to the list of things that he did. You know. <laughs> Uh, and not eat babies or something, you know. Anyway, um, it's all a bit ridiculous, you know. It's hard to stomach sometimes, but what are you going to do? There's nowhere to go. Get me on a spaceship to Mars. I don't know. I want to go to Mars. It's cold out there. And get me to, or just to the moon then. I could eat some of that lovely moon dust. Or cheese. Or the cheese, whatever, yeah. No, I would. Unless, I'd probably end up having to share a seat with Henry Kissinger or something like that. <laughs> the age of him. Um, yeah. <laughs> he should have slipped off this mortal coil by now. But oh well. Anyway, 
we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, thanks to Daniel again um, for talking to us and for discussing these interesting topics and issues. Um, and to our caller, Greg, and to our pop-ups, uh, not our pop-ups, our pop-uppers, our, our chatters, I think we're going to have a little outro here. So um, until next week, folks, have a good one. Thanks for listening, and um, we will see you then. See you then. Bye-bye. Relic here, reporting from my tiny log cabin in the upper shores of Lake Canada. This place has on average about, oh, 37 months of winter every year. Yeah, it's pretty cold. Being cooped up inside for so long, folks around here sometimes come down with a bad case of cabin fever. Some folks call it Ebola of the North. But there ain't no vaccine for crazy. Anyways, to pass the time, I like to keep up to date with all the celebrity gossip that one might find on the interweb. So, let's get started. The Academy Awards were handed out last week, and, well, nothing glamorizes the vapid excess of celebrity culture like a bunch of surgically enhanced beautiful people patting each other on the back for receiving a golden statue of a little naked man. Yeah, times have changed. Highlights of this year's award ceremonies include Doogie Howser prancing around in his underoos, a creepy Vinnie Barbarino going all Helen Keller on the face of actress Edina Menzel, whoever she is. And, of course, Lady Gaga stole the show by singing a tribute to the sound of music. You know, when I, when I think about it, it's actually rather horrifying to imagine what her favorite things might be. Speaking of Lady Gaga... Entertainment Tonight is reporting that she and her long-time boyfriend have, have announced their engagement. Well, congratulations to the happy couple. She's famous for her elaborate costuming, and rumor has it that Lady Gaga has designed a wedding dress made out of marshmallows and chocolate. The groom, on the other hand, will be wearing a tuxedo made entirely of graham crackers. This is so that when they, when they toast the bride and groom, they can create a giant s'mores. <laughs> True story. In other news, talk show host Ellen DeGeneres and pop idol Justin Bleiber released a prank video where they hid in a public bathroom in order to scare people. Well, back here in Canada... 
We actually have a word for finding Justin Bieber hiding in your bathroom trying to scare you. Yeah, we call it justifiable homicide. Hmm, I'll fix him. Fix him good. And one last Oscar item of note. When the nominees were first announced, there was a substantial uproar that the Lego movie was overlooked for best animated feature film. Well, as tragic as that development was, I just have one question. For them folks who wrote that movie's theme song, everything is awesome. Have you looked out the freaking window? Great Caesar's ghost, man. Your country's becoming a virtual police state. The cops are going around indiscriminately killing your neighbors and your your commander-in-chief is clamoring to start World War III with Russia. Huh. And have you seen the weather outside? Blankets of snow, sheets of rain. I don't know. Seems like somebody forgot how to make the bed. Do you catch my drift? Sure, everything is awesome when you're a two-inch plastic toy guaranteed to survive any apocalypse, along with the cockroaches and other vermin left behind, like, well, like politicians in their secret underground bunkers. But, but for the rest of us mere mortals, well, everything is not awesome indeed. Still, it's a pretty catchy tune. Everything is awesome. Everything is great when you live in a dream. Yeah, I have a feeling I'll be singing that little ditty all the way to the grave. Most illogical. Speaking of graves, we have some sadly breaking news here from the from the Twitterverse today. It's been reported that that actor Leonard Nimoy passed away quietly in his home in Bel Air this weekend. You know, it's not often one finds a celebrity who's who's both talented and modest, articulate and kind. And aside from all the money and fame that normally accompanies such a career choice, what he garnered most of all was our admiration and respect. Godspeed, Mr. Spock, and may you continue to boldly go where no one has gone before. Well, that's it for now, kids. Till next time, it's Relic here, throwing another log on fire and saying keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. So there you go, folks. That was uh, a little surprise um, from our pop culture, Top Radio Network's pop culture correspondent, uh, Relic. That was his pop culture roundup for uh, the past week or so. Uh, he will be uh, appearing regularly, we hope, from now on. He's located somewhere at an unknown, unknown, unknown location in the uh, wilds of Canada, so we hope we'll, we'll be able to continue to receive his transmissions <laughs> over the next few weeks because they're very interesting, very much on the money. Anyway, uh, so we'll take it back in, and we hope to see you next week. Until then, bye. Take care. Bye-bye.